All right, well, if you have your Bible, turn to uh, Philippians chapter 3. This is, um, in many ways, uh, one of my favorite verses, passages of Scripture, and it's one of the most formative in my life. I first came across it in a very few days after becoming a believer, and it shaped me in, in ways that hopefully will make sense a little bit later. But it's found right in the middle of Paul's letters. And we've been looking at Paul's letters and some of the things that he affirms and gives to us in his letters, right? We've spoken about how God encourages us and blesses us and inspires us and gives us patience and gives us wisdom and all this kind of stuff. But today as we look at this story, I think the message that Paul wants us to get speaks to our worth. And through these words, Paul says to us, You're worth something. You're worth something to me, but infinitely more than that, you're worth something to God. And it's interesting in this passage, Philippians chapter 3, verses 1 to 11, that Paul takes on a different role. It's almost like he moves from being an apostle to becoming an accountant. Because as you read this passage, there are all kinds of language that is accounting language. He talks about credit and debit and profit and loss. He talks about investments and he talks about debt. And so as we study this, I want you to have in mind that Paul is moving in this teaching from being an apostle to being an accountant. And that really speaks to our need because most of us evaluate our lives as Accountants. Are you familiar with this little chart here? You may not see it very often, but I can promise you it's there. Your boss has a little chart like this about you in their mind. They look at you and say, oh, here's some of the things that so-and-so is good at. And here's some of the things that we're concerned about. My work with the the soccer players, they have to live and breathe on this kind of scorecard, right? Because you're only as good as your last game or you're only as good as your last training session. And someone's keeping a mental note, these are the pros, these are the cons. Those around you, often even your friends are keeping similar ledgers, right? This is what's good about them. This is what I like. This is what I don't like about them. And if the don't like column becomes too much, well, we'll see you later. Uh, And Paul is, is pointing to this kind of chart as he gives this teaching. The reality is, though, it's not just those around us who measure on a ledger like this. We do it to ourselves as well, don't we? At the end of the day, when we're evaluating the day, the the metrics for success is something like this. Did I do more good than I did wrong? Did, Did I do more positive than I did harm? And if the positives are high, then it's a good day, right? We live off this ledger. And the big overarching question around this ledger revolves around how good is good enough. 
We kind of learn how good we have to be to maintain our friendships, right? If we're smart and we've got some emotional intelligence, we learn how good we have to be at work to keep our boss happy, right? But the big question that is somewhere in all of our hearts is how good do I have to be to please God? How many things do I have to have on that credit column to please God, to get to heaven, to enjoy all that he has for me? This is the kind of accounting that the Apostle Paul, the accountant Paul, is talking about. First of all, he gives us some parameters if we're going to fill in a ledger like this. She says, in addition, my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. To write to you again about this is no trouble for me, and this is a safeguard for you. He calls them brothers and sisters. He says, hey, we can have this difficult and honest conversation because we're family. Because you know how families work? If families are working in a healthy way, they don't play off this scoreboard, right? Because in families, we make a commitment to love each other unconditionally. So he says, let's be honest, and we can be honest, because I'm not keeping score on you because we're family. He says, that's why I'm writing to you, and it's not, not hard for me to write to you for two reasons. One, because I love you, and secondly, I want to safeguard you. He's saying, using that word safeguard, that he wants to set some parameters around how they're using charts like this that all of us use as a default. He says, here's some parameters, family, if you're going to try and live by this little chart. Three things that you have to watch out for. First of all, he says, watch out for the dogs. What does he mean by saying watch out for the dogs? The, 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 the dogs in Paul's time weren't family pets like we have now. They were nasty and vicious and would attack you. That They were out of control. He says watch out for those dogs. Those who are hunting and snarling and, and shamelessly unclean. Paul, Paul knew about dogs. There were dogs that snapped at his ministry and barked that he was telling false doctrines. Dogs tell us we're not good enough. And so he says, when you're filling out this, this form, insulate yourself by knowing that you are good enough by God. Right? There's nothing that you can, can do that will separate you from him. Second, watch out. He says in verse 2, watch out for the evil workers. Man, if we're listening to the evil voices when we're filling out a chart like this, we're in a bad way, right? Because the evil workers will always tell us we're not good enough. They will always tell us we're not doing enough. They will always tell us we're not, not matching up. So if you're going to fill out this chart, one, know that you, you, you are, are, are worthy. You are worth something before God. Don't listen to the, the dogs who continually want to attack you. Don't listen to the evil people who want to continually manipulate you. It says, watch out for those who mutilate the flesh. 
what he's talking about here is, is watch out for those who say that circumcision is the way to be kind of grafted into the family of God. He's saying that circumcision, if you don't have the heart change, is, 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 is just mutilation. He's saying watch out for fakes. Well, watch out for people who tell you what you, you want to hear because they want to manipulate you. He's saying, family, we're in, a, we're, we're in a safe place because we're family and, and this system shouldn't work in families. So I want to tell you as a father in the faith, watch out if you're going to play by this. Watch out for those dogs who will attack you. Watch out for those evil folks who will try and pick you, uh, trip you up. Watch out for those who mutilate the flesh, for those hypocrites who will try and convince you who, uh, of who they are when they're not really who they say we are. For we are the circumcision, the ones who worship by the Spirit of God and who boast in Christ Jesus. We do not put confidence in the flesh. As he proclaims, we do not put confidence in the flesh. He's introducing the idea that there is another way to live other than by the scorecard. Because the scorecard is all about our flesh, right? It's all about our pros and cons, our, our credits and debits. He says, we don't boast in that. We don't live by this anymore. We live by this other system that is given by Jesus that we call grace. That's not about the pros and cons column. It's, it's about this massive pro that says you are loved regardless. And so it says if we're going to boast, let's boast in Jesus. Let's let him be our credit Let's let him be the one that we're all about, the one that we find ourselves in. The first thing that Paul says about this scorecard is that if we're going to follow it, be very careful. But if you're claiming to be a Christian, you can ignore the scorecard because our boast is not in ourselves, it's in Christ. So he goes on, verse 4. Although I have reasons for confidence in the flesh, what he's saying here is if you want to get into a boasting contest, I will win. If anyone thinks he has grounds for confidence in the flesh, I have more. And he goes on in the next few verses to outline some of the things that he's got going for him in his credit column. He says, first of all, that he was circumcised on the eighth day. Now, for Jews, that was a, that was a big deal because that was one of the first laws that a child and the parents of that child had to obey. And if a child missed that eighth day, then there's not a lot they could do to make it right again. He said, no, my, my parents did it right. I am a true Jew. They, they followed the law. I'm from a good heritage. He says, I'm from the nation of Israel. God's chosen people. God's holy people. That nation that, that God set aside and said, hey, I got my hand on you. I got my eye on you. I've given my heart for you. Paul's saying, I... I belong to those guys. He said, even more so, I belong to the tribe of Benjamin. The tribe of Benjamin was the most uh, powerful 
uh, elite tribe that there was. It was from the tribe of Benjamin that, that most of the priests came. This was the, the, the best of the best. He, he's saying, I got, I got a lot, a lot going on. He says, if you want to talk about my Hebrewness, I'm a Hebrew born of Hebrews. Generationally, I'm from this long line of successful Hebrew people. There, there was kind of an elitism that was wrapped around that as well. In fact, a lot of the, the Hebrews distinguished themselves as Hebrew by, by, by holding on to the language. And it was a way of, of putting other people down. It was a little bit snotty. It was a little bit, um, bit, bit snooty. You, you've ever met a doctor who insists that you call them doctor? Right? It, it was a little bit, little bit like that. Right? But he said, I, I got it going on when it comes to Hebrews. Being a Hebrew, I, I'm there. You can call me doctor. <laughs> Don't call me Paul. Call me, call me Dr. Paul. I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews. He says, regarding the law, a Pharisee. He says, there are so many tenets of the law, but I'm so passionate about them, I've kept most of them. I've interpreted them. I've understood them. I've added to them. I'm quite the legal scholar. That was to my credit. If you want to talk about zeal, about passion, I can check that box too because I used to persecute the church because I thought they were heretics. I had that going on. If righteousness is the standard, then I am blameless, he says. He says, this is... This is my list. And in his day, he's saying, if you want to compare lists with me, I win. In our day, we still keep comparing lists, right? I, I, I don't know what your 10 things would be on your credit list. But somewhere they're there. Then he says something profound, though. But everything that was a gain to me, I have considered loss for the sake of Christ. Again, hear the accounting language, right? What I thought was to my gain, I have counted loss. He's saying those things that were in my credit column, as I think about it a little bit, they actually put me at a deficit in that most important relationship with God. A few weeks ago, I, I got a note from um, Vision Orlando, which is a group that I work with, and uh, George Cope is the director, and George has spoken here a couple of times, and he said, hey, we want to give you a little shout-out on our social media um, things because we want to honor uh, some local pastors for the great work that they're doing. So I thought, oh, George, what took you so long? <laughs> no, I thought, I thought, you know, that's that, that's nice. That's really nice, right? And so we had a little little conversation where he interviewed me about some of the credits, and I'm thinking, man, you're right. There's some credits there. 
Uh, you know, finally, people can see what's in my, what's in my credit column. And so I get a note that this article is coming out the, 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 the next day. I get an alert that it's come, and I start to read it. And it's full of typos. They spelled chaplain wrong. They called our church our church together rather than just church together. And then the killer was at the end. They put the picture of me and Evander Holyfield. But they said it was Mike Tyson. <laughs> you don't want to get in the middle of that stuff, right? So all of a sudden, in this moment, I'm faced with this dilemma about what do I do, right? Do I correct them in this stuff that feeds my ego, or do I just let it go and say it's actually to my detriment to lean into my ego too much? Now I decided to tell them and have them correct it, right? Just because I didn't want to start another Tyson uh, Holyfield fight, right? He's only got two ears, right? <laughs> but what I thought was going to be to my credit, when I actually looked at it and realized that it was going to feed my ego, that it was going to help me in ways that, that maybe weren't helpful for my heart, I realized that what was to my credit was actually to my debit. And Paul is making the same correlation and connection here. I had all this stuff going on for me, but all this pride, all this ego, all this boasting that I thought was elevating me was actually pushing me further from God. And so that which was in my credit column really belongs in my debit column. Does that make sense? There are things that we all put in our credit column, right? And we pride ourselves on them, and they, they make us look good and feel good. But because they're the wrong metrics, when we, when we lean into that, our credits actually become debits. Paul's saying, all these credentials I had, they're actually more harm than good. Say my credential can't, can't be in myself. My, my credential is in Christ. The, the, the one who gives me what I want and lets me go where I need to go and meets my need in a profound way. Paul's saying, if you're going to judge like this, be very, very careful. There's a lot to watch out for. But you don't need to judge yourself by this standard because we are in Christ. He is our confidence. Yet, yet we still do it. But as we look at our credits, we realize they're debits because we realize that Jesus is really our credential. There are a number of places I go on a regular basis where I need credentials to get in. When I'm doing some stuff with a police department, they, they, they give me a little, little credential. When I'm doing the soccer stuff, I have this little credential that lets me go where I need to go. But you know what I found about these credentials is that once you've been around the place long enough and you have uh, got to know the people who are working there, you really don't need your credentials. Because the relationship transcends your credentials. 
I, I'm pretty sure now that if I lost this card or if I lost my uh, Orlando City credential, I could still do everything I needed to do, not because I have something around me saying that I am worth something, but because I have relationship with those in authority, right? That's what Paul is saying here. As I come to know more and more the Lord Jesus Christ, as I come to know the God of the universe, I don't need to boast about my credits anymore because I have relationship with the authority. And he goes on to say that his goal in life now is not to uh, lengthen his credential list. It's to know Christ more. Verse 7, but everything, he says again, that was a gain to me, I have considered to be a loss because of Christ. More than that, I also consider everything to be a loss in view of the surpassing value of Jesus Christ. Saying, I'd rather have Jesus than all of that stuff. In fact, I'd rather have Jesus than all the stuff that the world offers to me. There is a surpassing value in knowing Him. The word knowing here is a word that speaks to intimacy. It's not a know of kind of word. It's a knowing word. It was first used in Genesis when Adam came to know Eve. We know that cold, right? There's an there's a intimacy in this knowing. Because of him, and because I want to affirm my life around him, I consider everything a loss. I have suffered the loss of all things, and I consider them dung that I may gain Christ. You know what dung means? <laughs> it's, not, it's not pretty. In fact, this is the kind of dungiest of dung there is, right? I mean, some dung is okay. It can be recycled, right, and used as manure. <laughs> But there's a lot of dung that can't. And this is the, this is the dungiest of dung, right? That, that is absolutely worthless. N nothing can, can be done with it. Really, really, what he's saying is that as I look at my relationship with Christ, everything that I earned, everything I worked towards, everything I tried to accomplish in my flesh was crap. F forgive me for saying that. I feel like naughty, but I'm sure... <laughs> You get it, right? It's just saying it's completely worthless. And, and he's saying to the listeners, hey, you want to have a conversation about your worth, but you're giving yourself to things that are actually worthless. They're the dungiest of dung. Quit giving yourself to them. I want to be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own through the law, but one that is through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God based on faith. My goal is to know Him 
and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death, assuming that I will somehow reach the resurrection from among the dead. In that last verse, there are two key accounting concepts that we need to grasp if we're going to throw away the chat, right? He's saying, if you function from the chat, watch out. If you're a Christian, you don't need to to live with this balance sheet because we live under grace. If you want to boast about yourself, then I got a long list myself, but I actually consider them dung, worthless. I'm putting those in the debit column for two reasons. The first, he talks about the death and resurrection of Jesus. And on the cross, as Jesus was dying, his last words were, it is finished. It is finished. If you dig a little deeper around that word, quite literally it is translated as my debt has been paid in full. Jesus is saying with his last words on the cross, it is finished. The debt has been paid. Think about that, right? Because if our credit is now in the debit column, then we're in trouble. We owe a lot. But Jesus says, your debt has been paid. So through the cross of Jesus Christ, these things that were good but have actually become bad for us have been forgiven. They've been wiped away. We have a clean ledger, a clean slate because of what Jesus did on the cross. Does that make sense? But not just that. He talks about righteousness. And the way that we receive righteousness is through an old word that we don't use very often called imputation. The righteousness is imputed into us. It comes from somewhere and it goes to somewhere else. This is an accounting term. It literally means to put into another's account. Right? So get this. You can play on the scoreboard. You can try and win on the scoreboard. But ultimately, those things that you try and win with on the scoreboard are a problem. They go into the debit column. But here's what the cross is all about. Here's what the cross is all about. It's about Jesus wiping out that debt column, right? And saying, your sins have been forgiven. The debt is paid. It's a clean slate. But a clean slate isn't enough for heaven So righteousness from the cross is where God imputes something that he has into who we are. We are made righteous by Christ. That's where our salvation rests. That's how we know how good is good enough. Not because of what we've done, because our good stuff will end on the debit side. But through the cross, God erases the debit and he puts himself on the credit side 
He says, you follow me. You let me be your hope. You let me tell you who's good enough. You let, you let me tell you you matter. You let what I say about you define your worth. We live in a world that wants to define our worth by all this stuff. But Jesus says, no, 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 that's not how it works. The stuff to your credit is to your debit. And on the cross, Jesus wipes away those sins. He pays the debt and he deposits righteousness into our account so we can know God. Man, that is good news, right? I, I mean... Here's the challenge. Here's what I just encourage you to do. Be an accountant of your life. Right? I think it was, um, I don't remember who it was, but he said the unexamined life is not worth living, right? Who was that? Does anyone know? I just quote someone that fits. Churchill, Trump, I don't, I don't know who it is. Lincoln. The unexamined life is not a life worth living. It's important that we examine our life, right? And the reality is all of us have got this scorecard in front of us, right? And every day we're summing up people and occupation and all this kind of stuff by measuring out the credits and debits. You know, if you need to do that, do that. But don't stop there. Realize that that which is to your credit, that which causes you to boast, Socrates, yep. thank you. That sounds more legit than Churchill. <laughs> that, that was to your, your credit. It's actually to your debit. And because it's in your debit, you got a problem. But you don't have a problem because Jesus defined your worth on the cross. When he said it is forgiven, your debts have been paid. And when he rose again and he imputed his righteousness, he moved his righteousness into our account. That's why Paul says, I consider all these silly games dung, the dungiest of dung. And I want to spend my life knowing Christ. Knowing Christ. Because it's only in relation to him that I can find my worth.